Please uh, open your Bibles to that passage that we uh, just read, 2 Kings chapters 22 and the beginning of chapter 23. Actually, I'm going to ask you, in order to understand some of the background, I want you to also have a finger in chapter 21. You don't have to read it, but it might be helpful for you to refer to it. 2 Kings chapter 21, and then we will be focusing especially on chapter 22 and the beginning of chapter 23. Well, it was a very dark time in Judah. Perhaps you sensed that from the passage read earlier. A very dark time. Manasseh had really sat on the throne for 55 years in Jerusalem. And if you look at 2 Kings 21, there we read that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And perhaps you're thinking, well, I'm somewhat familiar with the pattern of 1 and 2 Kings. This is nothing new. This phrase keeps reoccurring. But if you know Manasseh, you know it took on a whole new meaning with him. If there's one word to characterize this evil, it would be the word idolatry. Manasseh erected high places to worship the gods of the the nations. Altars were built in the very house of the Lord within the two courts of the temple, in fact. The temple was to be the place where God himself, Yahweh, dwelt with his people. He says, and this is 21 verse 4, in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem I will put my name. But now, now Yahweh's name was replaced by the names of foreign divinities. And so intense was Manasseh's devotion to these gods that he decided, I can barely say it, he decided to burn his own son as an offering to the gods. When we think of idolatry, we typically think of our posture, bowing down to worship another god. But idolatry, first and foremost, has to do with our ears. God had promised David and Solomon that in his house, in his temple, and in Jerusalem, I will put my name forever. He would not cause the feet of Israel to to wander anymore out of the land that he had given to their fathers. But there was a condition, an if. They would no longer wander if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them. This is verse 8. And according to to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Why? Because Manasseh led them astray to do more evil 
than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Imagine that. See, the essence of idolatry is a rebellion against the authority of God and his word. Idolatry, therefore, invites the wrath of God. It provokes the Lord to anger. Note God's response. This is chapter 21. Look at verses 11 and 12. Because Manasseh has committed these abominations and has done these and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears, it, hears of it will tingle. But then something completely unexpected happens. Two years after Manasseh's death, a young boy named Josiah, just eight years old, I wonder how many in this room are just eight years old. He begins to reign, a reign that would last for 31 years in Jerusalem. And here is where the unexpected happens. Look with me at chapter 22, verse 2. In this short sentence, we read something that is just unprecedented. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. You don't have to turn there, but if you look maybe later today at 2 Chronicles 34, it also gives us an account of Josiah. And there we read that in the eighth year of his reign, though still very young, Josiah began to seek the God of David, his father. Josiah took action. We read there that he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and of any images used in the worship of false gods. Essentially, he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem from idolatry. Reform was finally at hand, finally. And yet the greatest change, the greatest change of all was still yet to come. It happened one day, many years later, when Josiah sent his secretary to the high priest, Hilkiah, in the temple for just the reason that Money needed to be counted so that repairs could be conducted to the temple. Seemingly by accident, Hilkiah finds the book of the law in the house 
of the Lord. Look with me at verse 8, chapter 22, verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. I have found it. Most likely, the book of the law here is a reference to Deuteronomy. Perhaps it could be a reference to a larger section of the Pentateuch written by Moses. Through Moses, remember, God had laid down his instructions, not just for the people, but for the king. Instructions for how the king was to live righteously in the eyes of the Lord and how he was to then lead the people and the way of God's covenant. For it was this covenant that the people had entered into. In fact, the book of the law is sometimes referred to in the Old Testament as what? Anyone know? The book of the covenant. Because it was the constitution designed to lead and guide God's people, not just with the big things, but every day, every week, every month, so that they would not stray from the Lord. It was, in other words, it was the authority, the authority in Israel, because it was not only given to the people by God, but it was written by God himself. In fact, we're told it was written by his own finger. These were his words, his words. To reject them or neglect them was to reject or to neglect God himself. Let's just pause right here because I am very afraid that that we are going to move on in this text and not really understand the gravity of what has just taken place. Can you even begin to imagine what this meant for God's people? The living, active, holy, infallible word of God, the very word and the only word sufficient to lead God's people in the way of his covenants. This word is nowhere to be found. Nowhere, absolutely nowhere. People, we don't even understand what this is like in our day. To not even have access to the Word of God. To live in a day when you don't even know of a day when the Word of God was present. It's nowhere to be found. According to Deuteronomy 6, this was the word that was to be engraved on the hearts of the people. This was the word to be diligently taught to Hebrew children by their parents, discussed by moms and dads at the dinner table, recited during 
family walks in the park, prayed, prayed when you lay down at night and picked up again in the morning when you rose. So central was the word of God to the people of God that if you go back and look at Deuteronomy 6, you'll read this. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And where were they at the start of the reign of Josiah? Nowhere. Nowhere. Hidden, lost, perhaps. Maybe in the basement of the temple. I'm not sure, but they are nowhere to be found. When Hilkiah reports that the book has been found, it's been recovered. Any number of kings leading up to Josiah would have sent it back or worse. This is the decisive moment, not just in this text, but in the history of Israel. What will this young, young king do? What's he going to do? We're not told, but perhaps it was Deuteronomy 27 through 28 that was read to him. A passage where the wrath of God is promised to come down upon a disobedient and idolatrous nation. Knowing just how sinful the people were, perceiving that God would be totally just to destroy them. Josiah is cut to the heart. Do you see that? He's pierced with conviction and he tears his clothes. It's hard to think of a stronger image to convey just how distraught this king is. Here is God's authoritative word. The very means to eternal life, the very pathway to covenant blessing, and God's people don't even know that it exists. And worse, Rather than turning to this word day and night to know the one true and living God as his specially chosen people, covenant people, they have instead turned their backs on him, prostituting themselves, to use the language of the prophets, prostituting themselves with the idols of the nations, 
idols that the Word of God warned about. Idols, don't we need to be reminded of this? Idols that cannot save you. Idols that you can see, but they cannot hear you, and they will not speak to you. Idols that you've made with your hands, but cannot come through on their promises as Yahweh can, the God who speaks, the God of the covenant. Josiah feels the weight of Judah's condemnation, and he throws himself on the mercy of God. Look at verse 13. Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. The response God gives is, it's condemning, isn't it? Look at verses 16 and 17. I will bring disaster upon this place because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. A little too late, Josiah. Judah had indulged in idolatry for so long. They had rejected the word of God so consistently, so faithfully, that one king with his ears peeled could not change the fact that only exile by the hands of Judah's enemies would get the attention of God's people indefinitely. What's remarkable about this passage is that it doesn't end there. God has compassion, doesn't he, upon Josiah and the people of his day. After all, Josiah was penitent. He had humbled himself like no king before him. And so the Lord promised that he would not bring this disaster upon Judah until Josiah would rest with his fathers. I I just love Josiah's response. Look at verse 1. This is chapter 23. Josiah takes all the men of Judah... And all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, what a gathering this must have been. All the priests and prophets to the house of the Lord. Why? Why is he doing this? It's too late, Josiah. Just as Josiah was read the book of the law and brought to his knees in repentance, 
So now would the book of the law be read to all of God's people. Do you understand what a moment this must have been? People that in their lifetime likely had never, ever heard a word of it. Come down from your high places, your altars, your gods. They cannot talk to you, Israel. But now you are to listen to the one God who speaks. And not only does he speak, but his words are the words of life. We live in a post-Christian era in many respects, an era that does not believe that God has spoken. I appreciated the report a minute ago about the missionaries you have in Italy. My family's been to Italy. And though God's word has not been totally snuffed out, it is very hard to find. Rightly so, don't we desire to see reformation today? Do you desire it? So often we forget, though, that really where reformation must begin we think back to the greatest reformations in the history of the church, you'll notice that they each began with a rediscovery, a recovery of the authority of God's Word. Consider the greatest reformation of all, the 16th century Reformation. It was through studying books of the Bible like Psalms, Romans, Galatians, and many others that Martin Luther, that German monk, became convinced that the church in his day had lost, or at the very least, corrupted the gospel itself and seriously misunderstood how we as sinners are made right with a holy God. As Luther came into heated debate with Rome over salvation, a more fundamental question An issue rose to the surface. Who has the authority to decide on these matters anyway? As much as Rome valued Scripture as God's revelation, they did not believe it was fully sufficient. A second infallible source of revelation was needed, that of tradition, popes, and councils. These two, they said, are inspired and inerrant without error and have equal authority alongside Scripture, perhaps even greater authority. As much as Luther believed in the importance of tradition, recognizing that we are all standing on the shoulders of others, nevertheless, he stood firmly on the foundation of sola scriptura, Scripture, alone. 
Sola Scriptura means that only Scripture, because it is God's inspired Word, only Scripture, because it, it alone is breathed out by God, only Scripture is the inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. Luther knew that until the authority of Scripture was recovered, the gospel itself would remain lost. Unfortunately, such a recovery was not as easy as simply stumbling across the Word of God in the temple as Josiah had. In the 16th century, the Scriptures were in Latin rather than the common language of the people. Translating the Scriptures in many places was illegal and in many cases punishable by death as Rome held a monopoly on the Scriptures, claiming to possess the authoritative interpretation and translation of the Bible. What was the result? There was a famine of the Word of God among the people of God. Not only were many illiterate, but even those who could read likely never owned a copy of the Scriptures, let alone read one from cover to cover. The result was devastating. It was enslaving. Unbiblical traditions had crept into the church, some of which distorted the gospel itself. The Word of God had been lost, mishandled, abused. Now the people of God entertained idolatry. And the worst part, isn't this ironic? The worst part is they thought it was the real deal. Is it any surprise then that one of the very first things that Martin Luther does after he stands trial at Worms and sent into hiding at the Wartburg Castle, no one's sure what exactly has happened to him, what's one of the first things he does? He gets to work. He starts translating the New Testament into German so the people can read it for themselves. William Tyndale, the English reformer, did the same providing the English people with an English Bible, smuggling it into the country at any cost, and aren't we in debt to him? Luther, Tyndale, many others were willing to lay down their lives so that the people of God could read the Word of God for themselves and see the same gospel truths that had so informed these reformers. You see, the authoritative word brought with it not only law, but gospel. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, brought with it gifts. It bestowed gifts on the church. Gifts called sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Once God's word was back at the center, supreme in its authority, 
its infallibility, it then gave birth to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the word, one received the word, the Lord Jesus. As Luther so memorably said, the scriptures are the swaddling, the swaddling clothes in which baby Jesus lies. The scriptures were, as another reformer, John Calvin said, they were spectacles that the Spirit used to open blind eyes to the gospel. You see, it wasn't enough for scripture merely to be read. It had to be proclaimed. The ears alone, Luther said, are the organs of the Christian, and the lips are the public reservoirs of the church. In them alone is kept the word of God. You see, unless the word is preached publicly, it slips away. The more it is preached, the more firmly it is retained. Reading is not as profitable as hearing it, for the live voice teaches exhorts, defends, and resists the spirit of error, said Luther. Isn't that what we're doing? Isn't that what this is about? Luther concluded this thought with a startling statement. Satan does not care a hoot for the written word of God, but he flees He flees the moment he hears the word spoken. Satan doesn't worry about Bibles sitting around on your shelves. He begins to worry when you pick up those Bibles and you not only read them, but those Bibles are taken into pulpits He knows that when the word is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit comes alongside it, penetrates your hearts, and leads back those who stray. For the word, said Luther, is the channel through which the Holy Spirit is given. And when the Holy Spirit is given, souls are made alive, justified, and set on the pathway to glorification. Did you just hear what I said? The pathway to glorification. Through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit not only makes us alive, but he sets us on the road to be glorified. Which means that not only is Scripture authoritative, not only is it inspired, not only is it infallible and inerrant, but it is sufficient for you. Sufficient. Isn't this what we saw in the text itself? Sure, Josiah recovers the book of the law in chapter 22. But if you look ahead to chapter 23, Josiah applies the book of the law to every aspect of Israel's life. Look there with me just briefly. 
Remember, in previous centuries, this book of the law was also called what? The book of the covenants. Now that it had been read to the people, Josiah would make a covenant before the Lord, one in which the people would walk after the Lord. Look at verse 3. And keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with their whole heart and soul. Performing the words of this covenant written in this book. Look at verse 4. In case you thought Josiah is all talk and no action, look at everything he does. Verse 4, vessels made for Baal in the temple, burn them. Verse 5, priests who made offerings in the high places, deposed. Houses of male cult prostitutes, break them down. But he didn't just tear down, did he? He builds up. Look at verse, skip way ahead. Look at verses 21 and 22. Josiah restores the Passover, which had not been celebrated since the days of the judges. You see what happens when the word of God is lost? As we saw back in verses 2 and 3, hearing the book of the covenant naturally and necessarily leads to what? It must lead to doing the book of the covenant. Here, here is the essence of authentic reformation. Whereas previously Judah was a people who worshiped with their eyes, adoring, venerating, idolizing these gods. During Josiah's reign, they would now be a people who, whose worship had its source where? In their ears. A people who listened, listened to the voice of God in the word of God that they may once again be the covenant people of God. Have you ever noticed, I would encourage you to do this sometime, read through the entire Old Testament as, as quickly as you can and you will notice again and again how many times God says, listen, my people, listen, listen. Why? Because it's through listening that the people will start doing the covenants. But the word of God not only comes through, through their ears, it then has to come out through their hands. That's the purpose of the covenant, isn't it? It's a pact guaranteeing that one will do, perform, and fulfill the very promises made in that covenant. You see, it's not enough to hear the word. As James says, we must be doers of the word. Only then will true worship be recovered. Only then will your idolatry be vanquished. Only then will covenant blessings flow like a river. I think we need to be very honest with ourselves. Not kid ourselves this morning. We we struggle to do this, do we not? Don't lie to yourself this morning. 
we sign the church's statement of faith that says the Bible is our authority. We show up to church and, and we nod our heads as the pastor preaches from the Word. But inwardly, we despise the thought that we would actually have to come through on our commitment to that word. Intellectually, remember what Rick said earlier about compartmentalizing the greatest danger to your holiness? Intellectually, sure, we believe in the authority of Scripture. But functionally, we often live as if God's word is subservient to our own. Why? Why is this? The answer is found in just two words. Listen. Listen to me. Two words. My experience. My experience. Scripture may serve as an important role, but my experience is just as important and should even be the governing grid through which Scripture is interpreted. We would never say this out loud, of course, but inwardly we believe it and we live by that creed. The 20th century German pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer looked at the church of his day, which was not that long ago, friends. And he has a sobering evaluation. Listen. Scripture's message is sifted through the sieve of one's own experience. Despising shaking out what will not pass through. And one prunes and clips the biblical message until it will fit in a given space. Until the eagle can no longer fly in his true elements, but with clipped wings is exhibited as a special showpiece among the usual domesticated animals. Let me ask you a tough question. Do you keep clipping Scripture's message until it, it no longer flies? Have you domesticated Scripture so that you're no longer uncomfortable, embarrassed by what it says? Are you blind to the ways you have sifted through Scripture, picking those parts you'll keep and those parts you'll dispose? Have you been so influenced by the message of the culture that you 
have convinced yourself it's the same message of Scripture? Brother, sister, if you continue down this path, it will not be long until Scripture is nothing more to you than a showpiece, a relic, a relic of the past that has no functional authority in your life. May this be the morning that you wake up and rediscover the authority of God's word in your life. Be like Josiah, who was so pierced to the heart after hearing Scripture afresh that he tore his clothes, fell on the floor, and wept in repentance. And then, after a time of repentance, get up, stand up, stand up. Stop capitulating and compromising. And instead, like Luther, like Josiah, stand courageously, contramundum, against the world even, upon the authority of God's holy word. Of course, such a stance on his word, it may be harder for us as a church. The evangelical church has in many ways absorbed the consumeristic, pragmatic mentality that is so prevalent in our culture. Churches approach worship as if they're selling a product and the attendee is the consumer. And since the product is up for sale, churches must show that their product is more entertaining than anything else the world has to offer. Unashamedly, churchy gimmicks become the name of the game. Whatever keeps people coming back for more, keeping them in their seats takes first priority. That becomes the controlling principle for all things church-related. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You've been in those churches. The preaching, the preaching must be relevant. The music must entertain. Church events must keep people on the edge of their seats. If the church doesn't sell itself, it'll be out of business, we're told. The authority of Scripture, when applied to the church, when applied to you as a congregation, When applied to ministry, it's like pouring an ice-cold bucket of water in the church's face. No longer can we turn to the culture to decide what the church should be and do. No longer can this take place. God, his gospel, and his bride, they are not products to be sold And those who walk through those those doors, they are not customers to entertain. I don't care what the culture tells you 
about success and the methods to it. Such an approach makes man the center and treats the church like a business, something that is utterly foreign to the New Testament. Such an approach has traded the book of the covenant for the book of pragmatism. So what's the answer? Where do we go from here? The answer is actually right in front of you. It's very simple. Return to the word. Return to God's word. At its most basic level, this means the word of God takes center stage among the people of God. Sunday mornings are focused not around feel-good messages or funny anecdotes, but around the ordinary means of grace. The pulpit, the word proclaimed. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, the word made visible. But it also means that every ministry in the church is to be set in motion according to the word of God. If you do so, you will discover that Scripture is both a fountain of comfort and a rock of assurance, both for you, the layperson, and for the pastor. To the pastor counseling a couple struggling with marriage problems, to the teenager facing suicidal thoughts, to the 25-year-old overwhelmed by the culture's view of sexuality, to the tired, jaded, middle-aged Christian crushed by the weight and pull of secularism. To the widow who just lost their spouse to cancer after being married for 50 years. God is not silent. He has spoken, hasn't he? And his word will admonish you, but it will also strengthen you. It will equip you. It will embolden you. It will protect you. It will sustain you. And church, it will bring you all the way home. I leave you this morning with the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Pray with me.